Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm uh, one of several rotating preachers here at Grace Fellowship. If you're uh, new here, then uh, I probably look like the pastor. I'm not. Um, but if you've been coming here for a few times, you might notice every now and then we have different people up. It's because our church doesn't have a full-time pastor. We just have a bunch of guys who preach and hold each other accountable and study God's word together. But I want to ask you to imagine something this morning. I want you to imagine that we as a church are looking for a pastor. And I want you to imagine that a glowing application just showed up. That guy. This guy, he's logged thousands of hours of counseling for couples and married couples. He's loved, he loves helping other people with their problems. He's active in the community. He's reaching the poor people and the maligned people. And if there's a corrupt person out there, this guy is working hard to change stuff. He loves just reaching outside the church. In fact, the last church he pastored grew in size really quickly because everybody in it caught his vision too. In fact, it looks so good that you, you preempt the interview and you go visit his church. You walk in. And when you walk in, though, something seems just a little bit off. Everybody's smiling, but you kind of just get the feeling that the smiles aren't genuine. Moms and dads, as you kind of look out of the corner of your eye, they're pretty exhausted. And you kind of get the feeling that the kids have been yelling or yelled at the whole way to church, probably both. And uh, there's a lot of older folks there, and they, you can tell they've kind of been skipping a few meals. They're kind of sitting alone off to the side. But there are uh, plenty of younger people who probably look like they could maybe donate a couple of those meals. You know what I mean? So when you walk out, what do you think about this guy? You think he's still a candidate? I don't think you would want him. In fact, you might actually wonder if he gets what being a pastor means. What you heard in that example is what the church, what happens when the church has a wrong view of social justice. Bear with me, because there are a lot of ways to get it wrong. That's just one example. I say that because social justice is a very, 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 very common word these days. Who has heard about something related to social justice in the last 24 hours? Perhaps on social media. Perhaps in all capital letters. You know, there's a lot of churches doing a lot of good work for a lot of fantastic causes. But too often you see churches actually kind of implode. They're doing a lot out there, but uh, there's not so much happening in here. Far too many pastors are given awards or they're known in the community, while actually their very children start to walk away from the faith. Far too many families are sacrificed on the altar of outreach. And so as hard as it might seem, I want you to actually this morning forget about foreign missions. Forget about foreign missions. I want you to forget about local ministries that you serve in. 
I want you to forget about the co-ops and the playgroups that you take your kids to. I want you to forget about your campus fellowship. Those things are very important. But their health depends on our health right here. It's because social justice begins in the church. And I say that because social justice is not a human invention. It's the character of who God is. So we don't do it as a church because it's the right thing to do. We don't even do it because it makes a healthy church. We do it because it brings God glory, because it's who he is. When we do it, people see God. So in that example above, all those things that that fake pastoral applicant, we're not looking for a pastor, by the way, and his church members, all those things that those people kind of neglected, we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at our church, and I want to know, I want us to know if people are going to see Jesus when they come in here. As we look at today's text, we're going to see God teaching principles of marriage, holiness, welfare, leadership to his people in the book of Exodus. Those were all examples that I gave in that fake church. So we're going to look at Exodus and see what God thinks about that. Then we're going to see how that points to who God is. And then we're going to see what that means for us. And specifically, I'll add, if you were here last week, where last week's talk kind of focused on interpersonal matters in the church, you stole this and you kind of work it out. These situations this morning affect more than just two people. In fact, in many cases, they affect the entire community of believers, the church. So we're going to look at point one on your outline. Just marriage has a high cost. We're going to go through a bunch of little case studies. And uh, we're in Exodus 22. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Just two verses. We're going to look at those two verses and then move on. Okay, verses 16 and 17 of Exodus 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. I don't need to explain that. Everybody get that, right? (laughs) Shrug. (laughs) I love that of all the ways God could introduce social justice, he does it with a shotgun wedding. Because that's actually kind of what's going on here. Can you imagine this situation? Probably can. A man seduces a young woman. I see no reason to infer that these people are outsiders. I'm guessing these are two Israelites, and the man's enticed the woman. That's another word for seduced. And the reason why I say it is the word enticed and seduced, those words don't really have negative connotations in the world's culture. In fact, those words are usually described as kind of like exciting, adventurous, and, uh, you know, I think for a moment, I bet, I bet both of these people felt that. But now, here's how God says to deal with it. He says, pay the bride price and ring the wedding bells. <laughs> Any dads okay with that? <laughs> Bear with me. This is actually a really cool story. 
Because verses like these, these are exactly the verses that people like to cherry pick to make Christians look really stupid. People love to pull these verses and say, bride price? Is this like some patriarchy we're pushing here? What is this? But let's take a closer look. Okay, so this guy entices this woman. And what usually happens after that happens? The guy skips town. That's usually what happens. I volunteered down at the Pregnancy Resource Center. We get guys like this a lot. And this tremendous weight of parenthood, if that follows, typically falls on the woman. No hope of marriage. In fact, because of what happened to her, people are usually kind of backing off. She's like less of a chance typically. But verse 16 says, no. You get married and you're in good community and God's going to make it work. You've played the part, in other words, but God insists you stop playing and grow up. And the bride price is paid. Why does God want Israel to do it this way? Why does he, why does he lead with that one? It's because God really values marriage, and so he puts a very high cost on it. And he wants it to work more than the couple. And that's always true. He wants it to work more than the couple. And I mean, think about it. Married people, like, even when you do it the right way, isn't it really hard? But God works a plan here. And so he tells his people to grow up, as it were. And I've met so many married couples who actually started out like this. You ever meet somebody like that? They started out like this, and in some cases, they were both professing Christians, and they grew up in the church, and yet, as in this case, I've seen so many people who God has given them a beautiful marriage, even in the midst of that. He worked it out amazingly. Some of them are like stronger than like than, than us, and like people have done it right, and I'm like, how did you do that? And they said, well, God did. God put them in community, and he worked in spite of their sin. It's going to be hard, but God is faithful. And he gives them, by the way, community to help them. They're not just figuring it out by themselves. I think that's usually where it falls apart. Now, two quick thoughts before I move on. First, this is God's response to sin by the couple. So God can make it work, but this is not the template for how to do things. Second, it doesn't always work out. That's actually verse 16. It's not always that first example. Verse 16, if the father refuses, the bride price is paid, but no wife. So you pay for the wedding, but you don't get to go to it. Now, my parents love my children. They love seeing their grandkids. Just yesterday, we drive down. We're there for like three hours. And my mom's like, you just got here. Don't leave. And she's always asking, can I watch them? Can I love them? Can I spend time with them? And um, 
when you think about it, in this case, let's contrast it. In this case, marriage to, to the person in this case might be so bad that the parents would rather not have grandkids than have grandkids by this man. Grandkids are loved by their grandparents. Grandparents love having like millions of grandkids, right? Do you feel the pressure? Married, married folks here? You got some moms here? Okay, it's cool. Don't throw stuff at me. Okay? Like, this is so bad that the father's like, no, I'd rather just deal with the disgrace and the no grandkids. Just here, give me, leave. That's how bad it is. It doesn't always work out. And so I say all that to to bring you into a reality that God values marriage. God loves marriage. God's character is for people being together. But there is such a thing as beyond hope for that prospect. And so he gives God gives the honor of that choice to the parents. Marriage is serious business. Another way of saying it is this. God is a fierce defender of marriage, but also of character. He will not ignore character just to marry people. Now, that might seem like a really good time to hit applications, but I'm going to save all of them for the end because I want to continue to build the case of these rules and point you toward more and more of God's character. Point two, just holiness kills sin. And I don't mean like just holiness, like only holiness. I mean like justice, like right holiness kills sin. Let's read verses 18 through 20 and keep moving. This is going to get fun. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. There's a lot I could say to those three little verses. And there are some, some parents, probably some of the dads here, who read these verses and they wonder why the deadbeat boyfriend from point one isn't getting the stones too. Why are these people killed? And why not, why not the example in point one? Because these offenses are high, don't get me wrong. And so here's the thing. I don't want to imply, I don't want to try and imply that infidelity before marriage is like a six out of ten on the sin scale. And this other stuff's like a nine or a ten, so bad enough. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. These sins I think are punished so severely because of how much they can damage God's entire community as a whole. This is what I'm talking about where it's affecting the entire community, not just a family. This is the whole community. So the subtleness of mixing sorcery with the worship of God. You know, imagine what that might do for a culture. I'll give you an example in a minute. The, the biological damage done by bestiality. The high-handed blasphemy of false sacrifice. These are very damaging things. I'm going to give one example of how sorcery, for example, can be so fatal, but I'll use it with a positive example. So when I was in college, as a Christian fellowship I was involved with, and I had a few key members, I guess you'd call them leaders, they were just the people that, I guess, showed up the most. 
And um, I was one of them. And um, one day, we're all getting together, we're meeting. One of the girls kind of speaks up and she says, hey, I kind of like I'm, I'm a Christian, but I want to be a Wiccan, too. Is that OK? She said that. I'm a Christian, but I want to be a Wiccan, too. Is that OK? Wiccan. Everybody know what that is? It, OK, it's like the kinder, gentler, nicer form of witchcraft. Maybe it's like kind of new agey. It was very popular at the time, especially on the campus. And so the leader of our fellowship, I'll never forget how gracious he was in dealing with her, kindly took her aside and he said, no. (laughs) Not, hey, you know, what you do at home is your own business. Just don't bring it in here, okay? He didn't say that. Because imagine somebody in the fellowship is really hurting. And this girl calls him aside. Who are they praying to? It doesn't matter at that point. It's not God. It doesn't matter. And then say maybe that person feels better and she goes and tells somebody else. Before you know it, who knows what that fellowship looks like? So subtle. So subtle. You see how much damage that could do to a body of people? It's the stuff you don't notice. That's the stuff that destroys. It's the subtle things. And so God says to Israel back in the day, if a person like that won't stop, kill them. Kill them. God hates the pollution of his people. The mixing of allegiance. God hates that. Now, you might say, yeah, but we have grace now. We don't throw rocks, right? You might say, we have grace. Like, this is kind of old school. God doesn't kind of operate that anymore, like that anymore. We might say, like, oh, you know, like, we're beyond that. Like, God's kind of nice. But what does church discipline look like now when you really think about it? I mean, that's actually a word that a lot of people are like, church what? So we almost have to define that. I won't get too far into it. But church discipline is basically when you send somebody out of the church for refusing to repent of something that's going to pollute the whole church. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing a church and he talks about this. It's a very messed up church, polluted in a lot of ways. In fact, Paul cites this very passage And he equates church discipline with the death penalty. He equates them. And that might sound crazy, but I would actually argue that excommunication, being sent out of the church, is actually worse than being stoned. Because for the unrepentant person, it's a slower death. She just dies slowly, off by yourself, away from the church, thinking that you know who God is, and you spend your whole life, and then God says, who are you at the end of all that? That's worse than death. It's slow. 
And so church discipline, by all means, it is not about shaming the offender. And a lot of people, that's what they know of church discipline. It's sort of like, hey, we're just going to like turn our backs on you, you get out of here. This is about protecting the church because God is the shepherd. But there's also hope for repentance. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But that's why just holiness kills sin. It's going to sin. It's going to destroy everything. Okay, point three. Just welfare cares for the least. We're going to read verses 21 through 27. Look at another example. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and cry out to them, and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I'll kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of the people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now remember, hold off thinking about missions. Because I know some of you guys were like Syria. You just kind of went there. But I want you to imagine instead, remember that example at the beginning, I want you to imagine an elderly person or a widow in your church. In here. I want you to even just, for some of you this might be a little closer to reality, and some of you this might be reality. For a lot of you, it's not. But I want you to imagine having to choose between buying food and buying medicine. I want you to imagine that. That's pretty hard, right? How do you pick? You can include in here, not just the elderly, you can include a single mom. Maybe you had a boyfriend or a husband like in point one. You can include a student who maybe his parents have just kind of disowned him for becoming a Christian. Yeah, that counts. You're an orphan. Really? And I'm going to also add the hard case visitors that might come along, people that aren't even here yet, but they kind of walk in here. The text calls these people sojourners and widows and fatherless children. God is very protective of these people. Look at the language. Don't oppress a sojourner because you were. Israel just got out of Egypt. They know this. And God says, if you neglect or mistreat these people, I will kill you and your family. I will kill all of you, he says. And who is ready for donuts? Now, you might, you might, it's real easy to hear that warning. Because that's harsh. And again, think, oh, that's an Old Testament God. You know, now he's kind of happy and nice. That's why Jesus came to kind of apologize for all that. But that's not true. Here's how God deals with it now. Here's how he actually kills people who do this. He allows churches to die like the one I described in the intro. In other words, if you neglect your members... It doesn't matter what you're doing out there. You're dead here. You've got no foundation. And they'll die slowly. And you know what? Some of them won't even know it. I've been to churches like this. 
You ever been to a dead church? It's like Jesus said in the New Testament. It's like everybody is in the church and it's like a party. And he's like, behold, I'm at the door knocking. He wants to come into his own house and they won't let him. Friends, welfare means to prioritize the maligned people that are here. And you know what? The hard part about that is a lot of them, to be honest, are wounded because people have been hard on them. And so a lot of them don't even know how to ask for help. So you've got to get past that. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of care. God values them fiercely. And so the principle is to be generous, like in verse 29. Give them things. Don't exact interest. Do you know what these people have been through? And they're your family. You don't, you don't charge them double. You don't treat them like just kind of anybody else. You're just lavishing on them. Because they're like way down here socially. And even if you're like not way up here, even if you're here, you're higher than them. So you can help. I'm just going to stop there and I'll simply refer you to the book of James if you want to learn more about what this might look like in the modern church. James chapter 2. Just write that down and read it later. But in reality, I think it's how we treat the people under us that really reflects what we think of the God above us. And that's actually your last point. Verse 28 through 31. Just leadership sees God as supreme. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that's torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. There's a lot of kind of tangents I could go off in here. Here, I mean, you look at like verse 28, nor curse a ruler of your people. Could I not get like six sermons out of that? They might not be sermons. They might more, be more rants, so I'm not even going to go there. Um, instead, here's what I'm going to do. I want to focus on the structure presented here. And by doing that, I want to point out that there's a definite focus made by the author. First, look at the structure. Okay, who's at the top? God. And who's under that? Your leaders. And then, under that is you and all the stuff you're caring for. Now, in this section of text, what is most of the what are most of the verses talking about? Your leaders? No. Your God? Your God? No. The stuff you're supposed to do. That's the big focus of what the author is writing here. So I want to talk about the stuff that's under you, the stuff that's like in your care. And I want to ask this question. Do the things you own belong to you? You think, well, you just said, yeah, they belong to you. Like you own them. 
Well, well, they don't if you follow this structure. Okay, do the things you own belong to your leaders? I know it's tax season. You guys are like, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Above that, all the stuff you own ultimately belongs to God. And we have to start there. And I think actually this is the loudest evidence in the text of why social justice begins here. And we need to care for this flock first. Look at your job as described by, these te- by this text. It's to take care of things under your care. Not to curse God. Not to complain about leadership. But to do all these things. Take care of your family, the stuff you own. But here's the thing. How many people you know, and you can even, you can even like in your own brain like raise your hand, who do this backwards? Who actually do the opposite of what I just said? Let me just, like, give you a picture of, of this person. Imagine a person who complains all day about the government. You know anybody like this? Are they in your family? Did you see them at Thanksgiving? <laughs> or imagine all the people that complain about how much God has wronged them in life. They're usually kind of together. Usually, if, you, if you're doing the one, you're doing the other one. Now... What happens when you press into that person's life? You usually find, I will not stereotype, but you usually find that their marriage is kind of crazy and their kids are kind of nuts because they don't put in the time. Because they're spending all the time complaining upwards and they're not doing this stuff. So they're kind of complaining up, but in reality, what are they doing? They're neglecting and abandoning the people and the things that God has said, take care of these things. And yet those people are usually heard because they're, they're yelling the loudest. Or they're just busy all the time. There's a quote that popped into my head the other week. Um, Busy people are never so busy that they don't have the time to stop and tell you how busy they are. (laughs) But it's the quiet people that take care of their families and they take care of their kids and they tend to their marriage. And they might go here and you might not even really know them. Those are the people God is applauding here. So here's what God is saying in this. And in some ways, all of those examples. Church, care for the church. Care for your families. Care for your budget. Care for the people around you right here. Don't worry too much about the leaders above. I'm not saying don't ever say anything about that. But first focus, right here. Another way of putting it is this. Let's handle our business. Friends, what we see in Exodus here, in God's people, if you haven't picked it up already, this is a shadow of the church. 
God's character is holy, and so this set of rules, this framework of character, is based on God's character. And that's why he sent Jesus, because all throughout the Bible, even all throughout the culture of Israel here at this time, other cultures actually had rules like this. I was chatting with a seminary, with a seminary grad this week. He was telling me about uh, there's a, there a set of ethics called the Hammurabi Code. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of it. But there's like social rules that existed at the time of Israel. So it wasn't like everybody was like, didn't know anything about social justice. And like Israel was the only one who knew like, oh, sin is bad or whatever. But here's the difference. There's a big difference. Because what happens if there's a human institution that doesn't put God at the top and the leaders break the rules or the people break the rules? What do we do? We change the rules. So without God at the top, then it all just kind of falls apart no matter how cool your vision statement is. That's why the church wins. Because God's at the top. Because it isn't just some arbitrary set of rules that changes. This is God's character which does not change. And especially with Jesus, who kept them until death. Separation. Temporary excommunication from God himself. That's why this standard matters so much to us here and so little to anyone else. But that's why we have hope. And so social justice begins here because God's character is just here. We see it here. Jesus died to start the church. And so when we follow what God has designed, the people out there will see it. And as we are healthy and strong in the Lord here, we go out there and people see it. But... If we neglect each other, if marriages are falling apart here, and sin is ignored here, and the maligned and the suffering are neglected here, and if we don't handle our business and love our children and our families and our spouses and friends right here, then it does not matter what we do there. It does not matter. We die here. And that's the point of these commands. They're God's character. And so if we lacked his character, we're not just simply an unhealthy church. We are a dead church because we will not know who God is. And apart from God, nothing lives. But, Lord willing, here. As God's Holy Spirit works in us, we won't just live. Those people out there, they're going to live. We won't just live and be healthy here. Those people out there will come here. And they will see God here through us. And so even as we fail, God works through our sin and real repentance happens, and then they see that too, and all of a sudden, Christianity starts to taste really, really good. Really good. And even those who reject us, they get to hear the name Jesus. And then maybe this dead world will get to taste a little bit of heaven.
through us right here. But Lord willing, as God's Holy Spirit works in us, we live. But it starts here. So here are some applications in light of that here. I have a bunch, but I'm going to keep them very short. Marriage. So point, point one. Young men, do not entice her. Thought I was going to skip that one, huh? <laughs> She's not your wife. Instead, build her up. Young women, don't be, well, also don't, don't seduce either. Like you can do that, don't do that. But young women, don't be fooled by a flattering man. Some of them look really nice. Even if your dad wasn't there for you. There are dads here that will be like a father to you. Because God is their father. Okay, now, parents, dads, take care of your kids. A lot of you guys are like, you know, you got the shotgun ready. You're like, I get that. But here's what I mean. Some of us are threatened by being so busy that we're going to miss it. How busy are you? If you're, always, if you're the guy who's like always stopping to tell people how busy you are, this might be you. Cut out what you need to guard your kids here. Okay, second, church discipline. Don't neglect it. Don't hate it. It sounds super awkward, but it's great. I've seen it done really well. If you see or hear sin, don't just start rumors. Talk to an elder. If you're an elder, stick your hand up, please. Got some? Okay. Welfare. One of the best ways you can do this is to read your bulletin. And I don't just say that because I print them. (laughs) Keep your ear to the ground. Find out what's going on. I'll say start here. Say start here. I love the PRC. I'm going to the banquet. Um, But keep your ear to the ground. Don't just run for the donuts when we all pray together at the end. Find out who needs help here. Stick around for a few minutes. Talk. If you're over there, if you need a donut, talk to them there. It's okay. There's people over there too. And maybe you're not the strong arm. Maybe you're not like the person who like does it, who helps that person. But maybe you just connect people. That's great. Be a connector. And lastly, leadership. Just flat statement, handle your business. Other than we said it earlier. If you don't have a budget, make a budget. If your family is hurting and you have to step away from whatever you're doing here to help them, do that. You will be helping. You will be helping. You might learn something new. Or you might just find out that it doesn't fall apart just because you leave. God might actually use your humility to grow up a couple more leaders. It's okay. Friends, we are the church of a risen Savior. We are the light of the world. And so as we fight to stay healthy here, we won't just have a healthy church here, and we will not just have healthy neighborhoods there. God will get the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. God, there is so much 
going on out there. There's so many things fighting for attention, so many causes to join, so many of the things that seem thrilling and exciting to be a part of. And to be honest, sometimes going to church every Sunday can seem boring. Sometimes it can just be so easy to do stuff out there because it seems adventurous. Lord, let us see the godliness and the humility of just serving here, and even more so, serving people, the maligned, the hurting among us, people that can't give us anything back. Lord, because when you came here, that was you. You were a sojourner. Your character is that you do not mind getting your hands dirty to help people who need it. Lord, let our call be the same. Let us serve many for the sake of your glory, here and there. Amen.